Last week, we spent some time delving into the historical specifics of, of Jesus' birth. So we have the accounts from Matthew and Luke, and we discovered that there were all sorts of details in them that were true, that can be verified by archaeology and uh, uh, various other disciplines, and hopefully they increased our confidence in the Word of God, that the Word of God is not sort of a religious pamphlet that's just been made up by an enthusiastically spiritual person, but it has been uh, uh, written down, it's been verified at the time, uh, and even 2,000 years later, we can point to things and say, we know that happened because of this evidence. And hopefully it caused us to be uh, uh, confident in the word of God and to have a little bit more of devotion to it. You know, there, there are things in this that we need to do. Um, I really want us to get away from the idea that uh, our faith is kind of an existential truth, that it's kind of inside us and uh, what's true for us doesn't need to be true for someone else. It's this factual element to the gospel that is true and we have realised it's true and it's not up for grabs and uh, truth is truth regardless of whether someone else believes it or not. Um, and we've got all these wonderful eyewitness events that uh, just, uh, um, just fill the account of Jesus' birth, which is really exciting. So I want to address another aspect of the nativity stories uh, this morning. I want to talk about the supernatural. You see, we have these accounts in Matthew and Luke. And we have these accurate specifics of the Roman emperor, of the politics of the day. We have local geography, you know, Bethlehem is still there today, the town where Jesus was born, that is still a town that you can visit. But there are also some moments that are a little bit strange and outside our experience. There are some fantastical moments, which if they were ever put on sort of a video uh, or a cinema, you would imagine that they were CGI moments, that they were uh, computer-generated There's a number of times when the natural laws seem to be thrust aside and something else comes through. And people have always read these stories and wrestled with what is going on. You and I are familiar with life. You are familiar with the laws of nature. Um, You may not realise it, but many of you are familiar with the laws of thermodynamics. You may not know the scientific way to describe them, but there are all sorts of things that you know how they work. If I have an object uh, that's heavier than air in my hand and I let go of it, you would expect it to drop. You would expect gravity to come in. You would expect the sort of uh, uh, forces to exert themselves and for the object to move. We expect, we don't like it, but we expect our bodies to decay. We expect things to rot and less paid attention to. I bought a wonderful cheap church lock, put it on our shed a couple of uh, months ago, and I was like, that is done and dusted. And sure enough, 
Yesterday it rotted off and I was quite upset. But you can expect these things. You can expect things to decay and rot. Um, you can expect things to age and age often, unless it's like a fine wine kept um, in uh, sort of a barrel, you accept things to get worse and have to redo them. I was talking with one of the uh, uh, sort of former church members here and they were saying that this church is often like the uh, fourth bridge, that they'd spend all year painting it and then they'd have to spend the next year reapplying all the paint. That These things decay and we know this. If you're in charge of shopping, you know your cupboard's empty. That someone comes in there, rubbishes around and empties them. There are all sorts of things that we know that that is how they work. Our bodies age, the cupboard's empty uh, and things fall to the ground due to gravity. Supernatural phenomenon are hard to process because they don't abide by the things that we expect. We find it difficult to work out what is going on and how to understand them. And so for the last 2,000 years, people have been reading the accounts of Jesus' birth and wondering what to do with them. Are they to think of the star in the sky as uh, just a uh, something special about astronomy? Is it supernatural? Or was it a figment of their imagination? How are you supposed to deal with what is going on? Well, um, there was a 17th century uh, guy called Spinoza who started something that essentially, um, the term for it is demythologizing, which is basically taking the supernatural out of the accounts. If you find something a little bit weird, you can just explain it away. Uh, he, he would say that uh, any of these supernatural things, they're not literal. They're done for effect. They're a bit like smoke machines in a rock concert. They don't really mean anything. Uh, and one of the guys that took on what Spinoza said was the theologian Rudolf Boltman. And he said this uplifting thing. We cannot use electric lights and radios and, in the event of illness, avail ourselves of modern medical and clinical means and, at the same time, believe in the spirit and wonder uh, and the wonder world of the New Testament. He's saying it's incompatible. You can't believe in gravity, in your cupboards emptying and in locks rotting away and in miracles. The two are incompatible. And so you have to just get rid of them. You have to uh, just smile knowingly at the spiritual fools who think that Jesus walked on water. I wonder how you feel about that. This morning I want to uh, come against... Could you put in the the dongle in and out again? Um, I want to come against... This idea, this tendency, it is really easy to have to explain away supernatural events. I want us to move away from imagining they're a fantasy or that they're misinformation or they're hyperbole or wishful thinking. That perhaps the shepherds had a mass hallucination, they're enjoying perhaps some local mushrooms and had this hallucination of some shepherds and that's got what's uh, recorded in the nativity stuff. 
The miracles of Jesus' birth and the wider scripture are not incidental. They're not just part of the story. They are pivotal to it. We have to adopt the miracles as well as the bits that we think we can understand. There is this uh, scholar, Carl Henry. Um, he's a, a clever guy. Um, and his uh, magnum opus, his sort of life's work, uh, the peak of it, with these six volumes uh, entitled God, Revelation and Authority. I bought them about 15 years ago. And I think I'm on volume five now of volume six. There is some incredibly dense language, difficult uh, uh, words. Uh, but he's a clever guy. And whenever he talks about something, you are uh, suddenly uh, relieved to find here is an intelligent guy who kind of believes what you do. This sort of that conventional orthodox Christian uh, faith. And he went against the idea that Christianity is just an internal truth and someone can have a different inter- uh, internal truth and the two can live happily alongside each other, that they're both true. And he says, yeah, that doesn't work. There's got to be an external reality. And he also worked against the ideas of Spinoza and Boltman who said that let's take all the supernatural stuff out of the Bible because it's not literal and you don't have to believe it. Um, and I want to li- read out the words of uh, Carl Henry. I have been looking for an opportunity to read out Carl Henry for 15 years while I've been reading this. And I think today, um, so even if you don't understand it, please just humour me that I've been longing to read him out for such a long time. So this is what he says. Divine revelation, that sort of supernatural activity palpitates with human surprise like fiery bolt of lightning that unexpectedly zooms towards us and scores a direct hit like an earthquake that suddenly shakes and engulfs us it somersaults our private thoughts to abrupt awareness of ultimate destiny he's talking about the revelation and supernatural interference of god By the unannounced intrusions of its omnipotent actuality, divine revelation lifts the present into eternal and unmasks our pretensions of human incompetence. He's saying when we are confronted by miracles, we suddenly realise our humanity. As if an invisible concord had burst the sound barrier overhead, it drives us to ponder whether the other world has finally pinned us to the ground for a life and death response, confronting us with a sense of cosmic arrest. It makes us ask whether the end of the world is at hand and propels us unasked before the judge and lord of the universe. This is what you should encounter when you encounter the supernatural. It is not something to be explained away or uh, uh, made smaller. It is supposed to arrest your senses and stop you in your tracks. Like some piercing air raid siren, it sends us scurrying from life's preoccupations and warns us that no escape remains if we neglect the only sure sanctuary. Even once for all revelation that has occurred in another time and place fills us with awe and wonder through its ongoing significance and bears the character almost of a fresh miracle. 
Because of a revelation's engulfing impact, Karl Barth's uh, evangelical theology and introduction spoke of wonder as the primary trait of theological existence. I love the idea that you want to know what theology is? It's wonder. You want to summarize all the Christian thoughts of 2,000 years? It is wonder. Revelation is God's unmasking of himself, his voluntary act of disclosure. It comes from eternity, from beyond an absolute boundary that separates man from God. I love the idea that wonder is the primary ingredient of the study of God, that praise and involuntary, just lifting up your hands and voice and saying, you are marvellous God. Miracles are not an inconvenience. They're not an embarrassment. They're not something that we have to minimise when we talk to other people with. They are thunderous intrusions of God himself and we should be excited by them. We are. Amen. Can I have the next slide, Pete? Have you ever thought you knew someone and then discovered you didn't actually know half of it at all? I think uh, that is always true for people uh, in this church. I think I know you and then we sit down and I discover a little bit more about you and then suddenly I, I am surprised with the further details. A few weeks ago I was speaking with another minister. I knew someone uh, that was in their church and I was just saying, you know, these guys, they're serious, they're a little bit downbeat and they're quite intense and that was my experience of them and I was wondering how they were handling this uh, uh, um, smouldering ball of energy energy um, and the pastor was like yeah that's true up to an extent but he said you get them in front of the youth group and everything changes they become funny they become charismatic they become light-hearted they become engaging and he said you actually only know half the person when they get into that sort of youth group setting with a bunch of loose, just everything changes their faith changes and um, uh, uh, suddenly they become trans formed and I realized that I didn't know the person half as well as I thought I did and it's true you can only get to know someone if they let you in you can only get to know someone if they open up husbands and wives no you can only get to know your partner if you if they show themselves to you And here, you can only get to know each other if you talk frankly and honestly. They have to let you in. You cannot beat down their door. This is true, not just of people, but of him who we have been made in the image of. This is true about God. He can only be known if he shows himself. Now, uh, at the risk of turning you all off, I want to read you another little sentence from Carl Henry, um, and then we'll put him away, and you probably won't hear from him for another 15 years. So it says this, 
The idea of God making himself known is not so much a biblical idea as it is the biblical idea. In Bath's words, the God of the Bible is the God to whom there is no bridge and no way, of whom we could not say or have to say one single word. I'm going to leave out the Latin, if that's all right. Had God insisted on remaining incommunicado, we would know nothing whatever about him. Instead of his word word to Moses, no man can see me and live, God might have determined instead that no man should know me and live. God cannot be known unless he wills it to be known and to make himself known. Under no circumstances, whatever, can God's secrets be wrestled from him by intrusive human curiosity. My son sat with Santa yesterday in some sort of grotto. Um, He's got a black eye from an incident at home that is perfectly above board. And Santa really wanted to know how this black eye came on my boy. And my boy was just like, no. Not going to tell you a thing. Let me tell you, if an unsophisticated uh, seven-year-old won't let you in, then the almighty God who rules heaven and earth, he's the one that decides whether he lets you in or not. And it goes on. Were this uh, not the case then, as Macintosh observes, we should be committed to the incredible position that man can know God without his willing to be known. Apart from divine initiative, man could not perceive even God's existence, let alone his imperfections and purposes. God's reality would remain wholly problematical had he not chosen to disclose himself. Zorfar rightly asked Job, can thou by searching find out God? Can you fathom God's secrets? Even as the Apostle Paul reminds us in the Christians in Corinth, the world did not know God through wisdom. And then there's another 200 odd pages on the exact same thing. Uh, But I'll uh, leave it there. To discover meaningful truth about God, we have to listen. We don't speak, speak, speak. We have to listen. We have to pay attention. We have to let him show himself. We cannot impose our imagination on him. We have to hear his words. And so I want us to let God speak right now and turn to Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Go to the next slide, Pete. Hopefully a very familiar passage, but maybe looking at it slightly differently. Uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, who was a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, 
Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever, and his kingdom will never end. Suppressing a hosanna and hallelujah, uh, Mary asked, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Right here in this early moment of Luke, we are confronted with supernatural stuff. A heavenly messenger. Perhaps if you put your hands up if you have seen a heavenly messenger, an angel. They're not as common as you'd like to believe. Um, and a young, a young virgin had an encounter. History proceeds with governments rising and falling, empires expanding and contracting, businesses succeeding and failing. And it is rudely interrupted by a messenger from heaven, direct from God's own presence. And he is sent not to scare, not to impress, but to bring knowledge to bring the word of God, to allow God to speak to this young girl's life. And this angel Gabriel has some very specific information. Young Mary is going to be mysteriously and inexplicably overshadowed by the third person of the Trinity. There is a complete lack of biology and science in that explanation. But that divine act will conceive in Mary a fetus that will be God incarnate. God, ruler of heaven and earth, will send his son who was there before the beginning of time and he will become miraculously, supernaturally, inexplicably, wondrously a baby. If God can send a fearsome angel to speak of the future, I think we can allow Mary to say, oh, go on then. To admit that there is something new going on, that the normal laws of science and biology and everything else are broken through by God's specific supernatural uh, power. And wonderfully, Mary's theology improves. Being confronted by a miraculous messenger from heaven changes exactly what she thinks can happen. And her capacity for wonder increases. Suddenly she goes, that's right, I do believe in God. And yes, I do believe he can do supernatural things. And you know what? He can do that with me. And suddenly her, her theology becomes a little bit maturer. It grows up. And I want us to consider how we deal with the supernatural in our lives and in the lives of others and in the words of Scripture. 
because that miracle of an angel actually is nothing compared to God taking on flesh and bone. Have the next slide, Pete. On Wednesday, 10th of April, 1912, the RMS Titanic set forth from Southampton, New York. Uh, Probably one of the uh, most famous maiden voyages ever made. At the time, she was the largest moving man-made object ever. Um, There she is in all her glory. She had a crew of 900 people. Um, There were 1,317 passengers and 26 of those were on their honeymoon. You're like, well, you know, my honeymoon wasn't that bad. Um, We moaned that we couldn't uh, sit next to each other on the plane on our honeymoon and and suddenly that doesn't sound so bad as uh, uh, honeymooning on the Titanic. So on the 14th of April, uh, the first class passengers had an 11 course Meal. I don't know if you've had a multiple course meal, not just um, sort of starter and a main, but 11 courses. Um, early the following day, as those first class passengers were allowing that food to go down, the ship went down. Uh, the ship broke into two after hitting an iceberg and it sunk to the bottom of the Atlantic Sea. Um, why? Well, there are lots of reasons why. But it seems, at least from what I can gather, that the steel used for the plates on the hull and the rivets, they weren't quite up to scratch. The stuff that they used wasn't quite up to measure. The materials that they were made of wasn't quite as strong as could be found elsewhere on the boat. And they gave in too easily to the stress of that iceberg. It should have been fine. She, uh, the HMRMS Titanic had a sister that survived various things. Um, and so it should have been okay, but it wasn't. The material was wrong. The ship sunk in under three hours and 1,500 people died. Disasters in history are full of wrong materials being used, of materials being fine for some things, but being used in the wrong circumstances. Uh, I don't know whether it's still published, but there's a Christian book out there, something about a chocolate teapot you know you don't use chocolate for a teapot that's just nonsensical and uh, history is full of uh, wrong materials being used in the wrong places and I think regularly people misunderstand what their faith is composed of how it works out in their lives if you listen to many Christians you would think faith was like a delicate flower or a delicate ornament that was malleable like aluminium or breakable like china, that the slightest disturbance would shatter it and break it. That faith was like an extinct animal on the verge of dying out. Because so many Christians, uh, or ex-Christians if such a thing exists, um, a crisis comes, a disappointment hits them, or sin looms up. And suddenly, this fragile tree frog falls apart. Is that 
what it's all about? Are we all nursing a very fragile thing through our lives and just hoping that it won't break? Are we all involved in that egg and spoon race in the hope that we won't drop our egg and we make it to the end? Because that's how a lot of people talk. And that's how a lot of people act when things go wrong. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. Can I have the last slide, Pete? 1 Peter 1 chapter, uh, verse 3. It says this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. Can you hear the resoluteness of that salvation? It doesn't deteriorate, doesn't decay. It is not like the church lock on the shed. This inheritance is not in your heart where it is affected by all the things that happen to you. It's kept in heaven. And through faith, we are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These come... So that the proven genuineness of your faith. I wonder if you hear that. It's not that your faith expands or contracts, gets stronger or weaker. It's that it's proved genuine. The thing called faith in us is either there or not. It is not there by degrees. It is not something that appears overnight. It is a gift of God and it exists in you. And the trials and tribulations prove its genuineness. If someone says they believe in Christ and then fall away, there is a question whether they have a faith at all. But if a Christian continues and makes it through, they may not sit up the front and... And preach the gospel, they may not do a million good works in the community, but if their faith is there, then it's proved genuine because it is a gift of God and it either exists or it doesn't. To talk of degrees of existence is not biblical. And it goes on. Your faith, if it's genuine, is of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by the fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So faith is a gift from God. It either exists in you or it doesn't. And God is going to keep it there because that is part of your inheritance and you will make it to the end. You may not feel like that on Monday morning. You may not feel like that on Christmas afternoon when your turkeys burn. You've fallen out with all your relatives and you just want to go and down the bottle of Baileys that some idiot gave you for a Christmas present. Your faith is a gift from God. And Peter says it is important and it is beautiful. And it comes from the death and resurrection of Jesus. Our faith isn't an act of our will, isn't an ability for you to reason. Your faith 
is a gift of God. It is anchored not in your ability to try really hard to come to church. It is not anchored in your ability to read the Bible really, really well or pray for really, really long. It is anchored in the resurrection of Jesus. Suddenly that seems a lot more secure. Suddenly the chances of making it through to the end seem a little bit more secure. Suddenly your inheritance, which Peter said is secured in heaven, suddenly you're like, oh, you mean I don't have to grin and bear it and just hope my faith survives? No, because your faith is a gift from God and it is there. And when you see all these trials through, that will show that it's genuine. When we understand what faith is, the supernatural moments in the story of Jesus' birth take on a new perspective. Suddenly they change. They're not a case of, can I really believe this? Does this mean I'm a Christian or not a Christian? No, the faith is uh, embedded in that death and resurrection of Jesus. God has got that faith. And then when you read these accounts, there are opportunities to fan into flame what God has put there. The miracles aren't obstacles to overcome, to try and reason with or just embarrassingly avoid when you're talking to a non-Christian. They are reminders of the God who put in place heaven and earth and sent his son Jesus as a baby. The miracles are the moments where God opens up and says, here I am. When he does something unique that no other being on this planet can do. Good is done and we benefit when we read these miracles. When we read these things with faith, we become mature in our theology by not explaining them away, not by using long, complicated, sophisticated words, but by wondering by going oh that's good oh I'm glad I worship a God that does that and it reminds us what faith is it's not that we are somehow kind of in an egg and spoon race trying to keep this thing all together but it is God got it that God has got redemption That we don't have to try and save ourselves. God has done it. The faith is in us from him. And suddenly our security and steadfastness is assured. And then we just have that simple delight of trusting in a good, powerful, relational, heavenly father. Let me read. um, Let me close with the words of Louis Burkhoff. I've... uh, lent out my easy-to-read systematic theology, so I'm afraid you have to do with this one. It says this. The miracles of Scripture were not performed arbitrarily, with a, but with a definite purpose. They're not mere exhibitions of power destined to excite amazement. They have significance. The entrance of sin into the world makes a supernatural intervention of God in the course of events necessary for the destruction of sin and for the renewal of creation. It was by a miracle that God gave us both his special verbal revelation in scripture and his supreme factual revelation in Jesus Christ. The miracles are connected with the economy of redemption, a redemption which they often prefigure and symbolise. 
They do not aim at a violation, but rather of a restoration of God's creative work. I really like this. The idea of a miracle, it's not temporary suspension of what goes on, but it's God's breaking in going, you know, I need to fix this. I'm going to make it new again. I'm going to make it as it should always have been. And that is a miracle. Hence we find cycles of miracles connected with special periods in the history of redemption and especially during the time of Christ's public ministry and of the founding of the church. These miracles did not result... um, These miracles did not yet result in the restoration of the physical universe. But at the time, but at the end of time, another series of miracles will follow, which will result in the renewal of nature to the glory of God, the final establishment of the kingdom of God in a new heaven and a new earth. These miracles in the nativity, they are not something to be embarrassed by or struggle with. They are something to be inspired by and remember the God that put uh, Jesus on earth, that let him walk the earth, that made him uh, uh, multiply bread and walk on water, the one that saw him surrounded by his glory on a treetop, on a uh, mountaintop. These miracles are not temporary suspension of normality, but they are the breakthrough of God and they are saying it's coming even better, it's coming even bigger. This nativity is grand, but it whispers of the kingdom of God coming and it should thrill our souls that the supernatural is not something uh, to... um, push to the side but we bring it into the center and celebrate it and love it please bow your heads heavenly father i am thank i am thankful for you sending your son Jesus. God, I thank you for all the miracles and hard to explain things that happen. God, I thank you for the wonder that even sort of secular schools are forced to recognize in this story. Lord God, we thank you for the angels and the shepherds. We thank you for the virgin birth. We thank you from the Magi afar. God, we thank you for God incarnate. And Lord, we thank you that our faith is something you've given us. And Heavenly Father, I pray that we would allow these miracles to excite and spur us on. That we would look forward to the consummation of the kingdom of God, where everything is made right, where uh, all uh, death becomes untrue, where pain fades away, where uh, the reign of God is perfect and pleasurable. And Lord God, I pray that you'd help us hold on to that. Uh, In Jesus' name, amen.